Good. Well, we're continuing in our theme of not just for Sunday school. Okay. And the thing about this not just for Sunday school is that um, it's one of the things that, you know, there are things that stick in our, our minds. Um, uh, Dave was reminding me of a hymn that I do remember. I wish I sometimes could say, no, I don't remember that hymn. But uh, he said, do you remember that hymn, Tell Me the Old, Old Story? And I went, yeah, I do remember that. But there are these kind of stories sometimes, you know, oh yeah, I know that one. And actually, we can miss something of what God wants to say to us personally. But also, we can pigeonhole certain stories and say, that's what it's about. And actually, there's always more to learn from God's words. So we're going to look at a very, very famous story today. But we're going to set it in its context, because that is always important. So if you have a Bible, or it'll be on the screen, we're going to look at Luke. Where am I going? Luke, Luke chapter 15. Okay, we're going to read Luke chapter 15. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear him. That's Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulder and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? When she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the inheritance or the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven. Against you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the oldest son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, what's going on? Your brother has come, he replied. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So the father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you, never disobeyed your orders, yet you never even gave me a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad. Because this brother of yours was dead 
and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your words. We pray that we would never, ever get used to it. That there would always be more new things that you're wanting to show us and speak to us about. Give us hearts and minds and ears today that are open to what you would say. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Now, I do want to primarily focus on uh, verses 11 to 32, which, of course, traditionally are called the parable of the prodigal or the, the lost son. But, of course, that tends then immediately, and even in the NIV, it says here, um, the parable of the, of the lost, lost son. What it tends to do is to make this rebellious son the central figure in our thinking. But I want to say to you today that actually I believe it's the father and his attitudes and his actions that are at the very heart of the story. Indeed, this whole section of scripture is about that. And then also not actually far behind is the attitude and the action of the older brother. And uh, just to, in case I forget to mention it, the older brother really is a picture of Israel. It's a picture of the Pharisees and and the scribes, the so-called religious uh, people. That's really what's being pictured there in this parable, a story with a meaning. The thing about the Bible is we always need to understand it in context. Amen? We often go to the Bible, to the bit that we love, and that's not not a bad thing, but we, we go and we take bits out. We, we take a story out, we take a, a verse out, but we need to be very careful that to understand a story, to understand a verse, it must be placed within its context. It, we need to think about what are the verses that come before, because remember when it was first written, it wasn't written with verses and chapters. They were written as letters or accounts, um, poetry, so on and so forth, whatever it was, But the verses and chapters have been put in there to help us, but we need to just go back in the story, back in the time, and what was happening, what was he saying at the time, what was going on, why is he saying what he's saying right now, very important, well it's placed in this context, and also what's happening afterwards, what immediately happens next, what are the next verses saying, what did he say next, where did he go next, are you with me? So... When we take a story, and so when we're thinking about not just for Sunday school, perhaps that kind of phrase, you think of the story of the prodigal son. We can just take it in isolation and not actually understand the context in which Jesus is speaking. So I just want to point out very briefly that there are two little trilogies here that you might not spot, but if you like... The prodigal son, as we sometimes refer to it, is in the middle of two two trilogies. Okay, so you heard me read one of them, uh, the the, the first three, 15, 1 to 7, lost sheep, 8 to 10, lost coin, 11 to 13, lost son, or sons, we might say, okay? But then in the middle, if you start... There's a second trilogy, 11 to 32, the prodigal wastes his father's possession. Chapter 16, verse 1 to 8, dishonest steward wastes his master's possessions. Chapter 16, 19 to 30, rich man wastes his own possessions. All right, these are all actually part of the whole. They're they're not intended in lots of ways to be taken out, although we do take them out, and of course there are lessons to be learned. But this happens in the Bible all the time all the time, and it's important to understand that these parables, these little stories with meanings, are set within a context, and and the Bible is doing this a lot, and we need to be aware of it. So with this, not just for Sunday school, we need to be careful. We don't just grab a nice story or a nice verse and remove it from the context in which it's set. There's actually a a bigger importance and a richness. So that was one of the reasons I read the chapter. But you see the context, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 15, are very important to help us to understand what Jesus... So Jesus begins to tell them, verse 1, Now tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. This is the context. 
right? Tax collectors and sinners are all gathering around. Well, what's important? They are, just like we said with Zacchaeus a couple of weeks ago when we did that great story, these are outsiders. These are the unclean ones. These are despised. These are ones who don't have access. You remember that? We talked about that with Zacchaeus. Either the job they're involved in, tax collecting, sometimes the shepherds. One of the things about the shepherds being on the fields in a few months' time as we come to Christmas again. But the thing about the shepherds is they were outsiders. They were unclean because they weren't able to fulfill all the requirements of the law. And yet, who does the announcement first come to about the birth of Jesus? To the shepherds. There's a heart of God at work here. But these unclean, despised, lacking in access people are gathering around to hear. And, and like Zacchaeus, there's something about Jesus, something about his heart, something about the heart of God that he's displaying. They want to hear. They want to hear. And Jesus is not dismissing them. He's not pushing them away. He's not saying... There's no room for you here. You remember the disciples, the children are rushing around. Um, the, the, the beggars are calling out. And what are the disciples doing? Shh, shh, be quiet, be quiet. What does Jesus say? No, let them come, let them come, let them come. All right, so there's a context that we need to hear. Tax collectors and sinners gathered around Jesus. Second verse, but the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered. Okay, these are the religious ones. These are the so-called ones who do have access. These are the so-called righteous ones, the ones who apparently have it all together, certainly on the surface. Okay, they're muttering, and in the NIV and other verses it says, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. But you'll see that word man is crossed through. I'm told by the commentators and those who are able to read the, the Greek and the Hebrew very accurately, that there is actually blank. So basically what they did was this. This, that's how they did it. This welcomes sinners and eats them. They could not even name Jesus. They could not even say anything. They certainly weren't calling him a teacher at this point or anything. They're going, this blank, if you like. This blank welcomes sinners and eats with them. Okay, that's the context, all right? Tax collectors and sinners gathering round, scribes and Pharisees, religious leaders also gathered round, but deeply muttering, and it says, then Jesus told them. So that's the context. You need to understand where we're sitting and what's going on, the picture, the heart. Then Jesus told them this parable, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses them. Suppose a woman has ten silver coins. It's a picture of inheritance. It would be like that, uh, what we would probably now call, um, what do we call that? The, the, yeah, the charm bracelet or the, you know, the Pandora bracelet with all the precious things. It would have been that kind of picture and one of them falls off. It's, it's a valuable thing. It's fallen off into the dirt. Suppose, he's telling this story, or suppose there was a man who had two sons. So can you see the context You understand, you've got lost, outsiders, rebels, broken. Jesus is receiving them. And with the likes of the Samaritan woman at the well, or Zacchaeus that we talked about a week or two ago, actually, Jesus is not only receiving them, he's searching them out. He goes, no, no person would normally have gone and sat down next to a Samaritan woman at the well, particularly one who has a reputation, which is why she's there at the middle of the day. Okay, these are all these things. Jesus searches them out. Zacchaeus, he stops under the tree. Zacchaeus, I must come to your house today. Okay, so not only is he welcoming, he's searching out, actively going towards them. And there's that that heart that you see in that searching shepherd. You see it in the sweeping woman. You see it, as we'll come to, in the running father. And yet, the religious leaders are, are sitting around and they're saying, what's he doing? What's he saying? What's this? What, what, who does he think he is? I want to give you an application. Sometimes we give application at the end. I will give some application at the end. I want to give you an application phrase right up front, uh, a statement which we can put up. The Father's heart 
is a saving heart. There is always room in his heart for the hurting and broken to come home. The father's heart is a saving heart. There's always room in his heart for the hurting and broken to come home. And then I've got little brackets underneath, which is not on the screen. It's those of us who think we have it all together who need to examine our hearts to see if we are not judging or pushing away the very ones the Father is seeking out. Throughout the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, Jesus often always chooses this title of Father as his primary name for God. Uh, You know, teach us to pray. What does he say? Our Father. It's often the case when Jesus wants to point out something, though, or to tell a story, that he will, he will take different images. He'll talk about, think about the farmer, he'll say. He'll, he'll pick up pictures that are going on around. He'll say, um, there's a shepherd, there's a woman sweeping, and so on. And he's painting a picture. And so we, as, we, as we have here, we've got this searching shepherd. We've got this searching or sweeping woman, which essentially is Jesus' particular, uh, Depicting God as a woman, they, it wouldn't have been lost on the scribes and Pharisees. It would have been quite a shock for Jesus to clearly be depicting God as a woman in that context at that time. And then, in this parable that we're focusing on, Jesus displays this heart of the Father, totally and utterly countercultural, but in a glorious way. Now, it is a very, very well-known story. We could tell it off by heart, couldn't we, really, in lots of ways. But I just want us to look briefly at some of the verses that really we know so well, highlight one or two things, and then I, I just want to highlight a, a key feature that I feel today. There's lots of things we could draw out, but there's one particular element that you can see already, I think, where I'm going. But It's a well-known story. Verse 11, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. I do want you to understand that in this little trilogy of stories, the story is getting focused in. All right, 100 sheep goes off to get one. 10 coins goes off to get one. But the thing is honing in and honing in. But also it's becoming more and more Uh, challenging and provoking. You see, this is not just sheep wandering off for a bit. This is not just a coin lost on a dirt floor. In the middle of Eastern culture, remember we talked about this a couple of weeks ago with Zacchaeus, it's hard for us to comprehend some of these stories. When Jesus was telling them, people would have been shocked, absolutely shocked, uh, even that he would tell a story like this and use it as an illustration. So we have to try and capture that. This is a picture of complete rupture, not only within a family, but within the community. This is a, a community being ruptured by this young man's actions, totally decimated. The, the community would have felt the full force of this, let alone the, let alone the father and so on. So it's, it's a rupture of relationship, not just to the family, but to the entire village and community. Uh, it would have been shocking to listen to. And, and as it goes on, it got more shocking. Okay, No son in this culture, certainly at this time, would have requested inheritance before his father's death. Just wouldn't have been done. Yes, they might debate and discuss as to how things were going to be parceled up. But actually, this inheritance was not cash. That's the other thing we need to understand. It's not just about, is this not cash? Go to the bank and give me some of your cash you have stashed away. It's all interrelated with the fields and the farmland and everything. It's all in there. Okay? So you can't just cash it up quickly. Things have to be sold. Things have to be divided up. So even if it was being clarified who gets what. By the way, the firstborn, the older brother, would get two-thirds. You certainly would never ask him to sell your bit while he was still alive. That's actually a breaking up of the family home. It's, a, it, it, it's taking things and breaking it up. This is the story that Jesus is telling. 
We need to understand the level of insult. This is a young man, as it were, walking up to his father and saying, I wish you were dead. Literally, that is it. I wish you were dead. That's what he's doing. Uh, And by the way, I'm going to treat you as though you are by liquefying my bit of the, the capital into cash. As one commentator I read this week, this young guy wants to cash in his sonship. Cash in his sonship. Total destruction of the family structure in that sense. Now anyone hearing this story is going to expect that any second now, righteousness is going to prevail. The father is going to rise up. The village, the community is going to rise up. This young man is going to get sorted out. Okay, that's what they're expecting. Okay, this is horrific, but we know what is now going to happen. The son's going to be taken away. He'll be punished until he honours the father. He'll repair everything that he's done, and maybe possibly one day he might get access back in, but uh, his life's going to be hell for months, if not years, to come. But instead, the father gives him what he asks for. That would have been a shock. There would have been a gasp as Jesus is telling the story. Not long after that, verse 13, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country and squandered his wealth in wild living. Okay, He's got this urgent need. There's something driving him for what he thinks is freedom. I need to to break away. I need to break away from where I am. I've got to get uh, to freedom. And What we have to understand again is that when the Bible stories are being written and even what Jesus is saying, we can miss the little bits and pieces. Um, And so sometimes we can tell, as it were, have a memory of a Sunday school story or a sense of it in our minds and miss. But just to point out to you where it says far country or a distant country, okay, that is a picture that all of Israel, the Jews, would have understood is that basically he's going over to the other side. All right, when to go to a far country, a distant country, was to go to the Gentiles. All right, one of the verses that I always battled with when I was younger, but I've got it settled, and you've heard me say this before, and that's why I love to live here. But it says in Revelation, there was no more sea. Okay, and I go, I'm not going to heaven if there's no more sea, you know, which is a ludicrous thing to say. But actually, if you look at Jerusalem, if you look at Israel, if you look at the people of God at the time, they are right beside the sea. But other countries, to cross the sea is to go to the Gentiles. All right? It's to go to the other side. It's to go to the foreigners. It's to leave your home. It's to leave your nation. All right? So when Jesus says he goes to a far country or he goes to a distant country, basically he's crossing over to the other side. Okay? Now we might, we might miss that if we're not aware of some of the language. There's a picture of separation. So I believe, and lots of theologians say, so I'm, I say few, that actually when it says there's no more sea, it's no more separation. Okay? We're one new man in Christ. One new humanity. Amen? <laughs> Those of us who love the sea. Okay? Now you might want to say, oh, it would be quite nice if there's no more sea. But um, we could cross over to the dark side as it's sometimes referred to. Um, but the other thing about this, this distant country, there's a sense in which it's out of sight, out of mind. All right? I think I'm going to get away with it. I think I'm going to cross over somehow and I'm going to be out of sight, out of mind. A distant country, far enough away that people don't know what's going on. But clearly people did know what was going on. The older brother has a whole list of things that he thinks he knows what happened, whether he has specifics or not. But at times, you know, we can say, I'm just going to remove myself. I'm going to step away. Somehow, there's this sense of I'm going to cross over because I'll be out of sight, out of mind. I want to say to us, brothers and sisters, that God sees all. The Father sees all. He, he, he knows all. We can't run away from him. We might think we're running away. We might physically remove ourselves from a church environment or a Christian environment, whatever it might be. But actually, we cannot remove ourselves from what I believe is the heart, the precious heart of the Father. But for a season of time, we can think like, I've got control. I'm going to cross over. I'm going to remove myself. 
Now, sin has all sorts of meanings and definition in today's society, and people will mention sin in different ways, and we'll hear it in programs and films and so on. But here we have a clear picture that sin equals rebellion. Okay? It's, it's, it's rebelling against our, our home, the place that we were created to be in. We're rebelling against it. I want to say this, it's a rejecting of our place in the household of God. We were made and created to be in the, in the, in the bosom of the Father, is one of those pictures, in the household of God. To be in relationship, in intimacy. Now with the fall, there is this break, this fracturing that comes. And of course, again, it's this picture, there's a fracturing of, of the relationship. It's a rejecting of our place in the household of God. It's taking ourselves out from under the covering of the Father. That's the thing. It's a place of protection. It's a place of love. It's a place of provision. Yes, it is a place of discipline. But as as the Bible says, God only disciplines us out of love that we might grow in him. We were saying today, we were talking about that, uh, the, the lemon tree words that we sometimes share as a church that got given to us as a church. But the thing about the, any fruit tree or any tree we know, yes, the dead bits get pruned off, but we forget the verse that says he prunes us. Why? That we might be more fruitful. Okay, So you might say, oh, I'm feeling a bit constricted in the Father's house at the moment. I need to just spread my wings and, and fly a bit. But I'm taking myself out of the place of security, out of the fruitful place, out of the place that actually I will blossom. I've been placed into the Father's house. I'm a son, I'm a child in the Father's house. But there are times when my my sinful nature, no, I want to break free from this. And suddenly I'm, I'm out of that place of covering. I'm out of that place of security. We're hearing these things. There's all sorts of nuances built into this story. Yes, initially, there seems to be excitement of wild, unrestrained living, but it doesn't last. It never lasts. Reality is that nothing that the world has to offer, as we were singing and thinking about uh, today in our worship, will never meet or ever meet the deep needs that each one of us have for love, for acceptance and for significance. We were made to be accepted. We were made to know significance. We were made to know security. That's how we were created and formed, but it's in the Father. It's in the household of the Father. That's where we find our acceptance. That's where we find our significance and our security. It's only the Father can give it to us. Now, the world that we live in, and we know it, is seeking and trying to find all the time to fulfill those distinctives. But they can't be filled outside of the household of the Father. And what is depicted here is a clear warning of the consequences of breaking away from the presence of the Father. Verse 14, after he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out as a citizen of that country who sent him to his feed, fields to feed pigs. You know, there's something in Jesus, there's, a, there's loads of humor in Jesus. You just have to know it and understand it. But I think, remember he's in a far country, he's in a Gentile country, but he would have looked like a Jew at the time, would have smelt like a Jew, would have, would have dressed like a Jew, okay? He's getting desperate and then suddenly, a Gentile guy sees him and says, I don't know what I'll do with you. You go down the road, feed my pigs. There's quite a lot of humour there. <laughs> uh, although the scribes and Pharisees would have not been laughing. Okay? They would not be laughing. This guy's got to such a low place that he's going to get involved with the most unclean of the unclean. He's going to be sitting with, living alongside. Talk about somebody being in a place that makes them utterly unclean for a Jew, that would be it, being keeper of the pigs. He ends up far from being in freedom, 
far from being in a place of security, he ends up broken, empty, and alone. And added to that, the far country is hit by a famine. Of course, his so-called friends that he probably had around him when he had all that cash are gone. The relationship, the love, the security that he had with the father in the home and in the community, it's gone. It's totally gone. And in his desperation, he accepts this most humiliating and for a Jew, disgusting, repulsive job. The worst thing he possibly could do, feeding pigs. But even in this context, he's treated even worse than the pigs that he's feeding. He's so hungry, he's prepared to eat what they're eating, it says, but no one would even let him do that. Finally, he starts to realize just what he's left behind and what is actually back at home. Comes to his senses, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? Here I am starving to death. I'll set out and go back to my father and say to him, listen to this prayer. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. I want to say to us, I want to keep reminding us, even those of us who've been Christians for many, many years, the first steps towards real repentance come when we begin to realize, in fact, I want to say, when we recognize the state that we are in outside of God. It's a realization, it's an acceptance, it's a recognition of our state. That's the first step in repentance, it's acknowledging and recognizing the loss, the emptiness outside of the security of the Father's presence. I want to just highlight to us, this young man in Jesus' story does not try to justify his actions. I I just needed a bit of space. I needed a bit of freedom. He doesn't try to blame his father or his brother Do you know the parameters I've been in have been a bit strict? I feel a bit constricted, a bit tied down. Uh, It's all right for you. You're the oldest one. You're going to get two-thirds. I'm just going to be getting this bit. No, he doesn't try to justify his actions in any way. Somehow, you know, it's something to do with them. But he says, no, I have sinned. I have sinned. You know, it gives us a real clue, I believe, to something of the response that we see in a moment that we know so well. You see, I think so many of us live in a place of fear. If I acknowledge where I'm at, if I acknowledge what will happen, I'll be condemned, I'll be, contra- I'll be, you know, I'll be crushed. But all the Father is looking for is that moment of acknowledgement and then the outpouring of grace And mercy that flows from that moment of acknowledgement is astonishing. But in this moment, he is, there's a realism and a recognition. No, I have sinned. Neither does he get into a place of pity or bitterness. Well, life owes me. You know, I'm the poorest son. I'm not the firstborn. Life owes me. I need to get my bit. Things should have gone differently for me. Things should have gone better for me. These are all kinds of things that when people get into bitterness or they get, um, they get into sort of judgment against circumstances around them, that these are the kinds of things that can happen. No, he recognizes his failure. He recognizes his sin. It's not only against his father and the community, but it's also against heaven. It's against the heart of God. This is the principle that Jesus, he, he, he has sinned against the heart of God. One of the elements of repentance towards God is laying down my rights. We live in a world, in a society today, where rights are everything. We talk about rights all the time. We're bombarded about it. And for the Jewish people, for the religious leaders who are listening on, my right to be accepted by God because of because of my works, is foremost in their mind. That's why I need to keep myself clean and pure and holy. I mustn't touch this one. I mustn't touch that one. I mustn't get involved with this, that, or the other. That will earn me righteousness before God. And we can find ourselves even today saying, 
I'm okay because I'm, I'm living this way. I'm, I'm, I'm living... And we don't spot the things that we're failing to do all the time. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. Some of us will say, well, look, I've got this amount of goodness and, and I'm relying on my goodness. No, we have all fallen short of the glory of God. And my right to be accepted by the Father has nothing to do with anything that I have done. They justified themselves, the, the Pharisees, by their, through their righteous acts. And, and Jesus is, is saying, no. This, what is about to happen in the story has got nothing to do with the acts of this young man. And in fact, the way he's talking, he, he's, he's recognizing he doesn't have a place any longer. This is why he does the bit, because he doesn't get to say to his dad, but he says, look, I know I've sinned against you, I've sinned against heaven, there's no way I can get back in, I can't have a place any longer, but if, if there's a possibility I can just be somehow on the edges and fringes, can I be a slave, can I be a servant, can I somehow just look on from afar? So he knows, he doesn't have any rights left. He's forfeited the intimacy that he once had. But if, if he can just be back in the father's country, it's a far better place. If he can be on the edges of the farmland, if he can serve on the fringes of the fields, it's a far better situation to be in than to be in the far country. As I was preparing this, I thinking that one of the Psalms jumped straight into my mind. Psalm 84 verse 10. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. Can you hear the echoes as Jesus is telling this story? Can you hear the echoes? This this young man is saying, if I can just be on the edges, it's better than being in the tents of the wicked. But then we come to the very heart of this story. And I'm almost going to finish it as a, as a prayer and help us to, to pray. So you might just reflect as I'm, I'm going to do this. The very heart of the message of Jesus. The very heart of the gospel. Okay, It's the Father's passionate display of love and grace. Middle Eastern Father. Man of standing, high regard, a man of honour, running down the road. Total humiliation. This is not what a Middle Eastern man does. Totally humiliating. But there is a, a passion within him that is propelling him. Propelling him. He should be waiting for the repentant one to come should be waiting for him to literally crawl on his hands and knees for the last kilometre or so, showing all honour that he possibly could, being totally contrite. No, none of that. He's running. This is a running father. And he flings his arms around him. Flings his arms, ignoring... Imagine the smell. Imagine the state this guy, as he's making his way back, he ignores the smell. He throws his arms around him, kisses him. We need to understand that in this story, as Jesus is telling it, making this contact, again, people would have gasped. This father, this man of standing in the community, is not going to touch this one who's been herding pigs. All right? It makes him utterly unclean. But what does he do? He flings his arms around him and he kisses him. This is a kiss of love. This is a kiss of acceptance. You think of the kiss of Judas on Jesus, the kiss of betrayal. This is a a kiss of, of love and acceptance. Imagine the smell. Imagine the state. He's lost everything. And in this moment, the father flings his arms around him. The father makes contact that will itself cause the father to be rejected. Utter outsider, unclean, living with pigs, 
Goodness knows the purification procedures that the law would have required for him to get right to be acceptable. The father threw his arms around him and kissed him. And that's his new clothes. Get a robe. Get new clothes. It's covering of shame. Remember, this is an honor-shame culture. This is a man probably now in rags and filth for sure. There's a covering of shame. Think of the robe of righteousness which we have been robed in Christ. This is a, this is a, this is a covering, this is a robe that almost undoubtedly would have, co- would, would have had embroidered the family emblem. Immediately this robe is put around him. Put, put the robe around him. Bring him back into the family. Remember years ago, speaking with a group of very rural Basutu people, and the Basutu people have something very special. They have a, have a blanket. It's often referred to as the Basutu blanket. And each one of these blankets marks out the clan, the tribe. And these people, sometimes they're desperate. They have nothing. They're out in the hills or out in the fields. But each one of them has a blanket. It speaks of their, their tribe. It speaks of their family. And far from pushing him, far from beating him, far from taking a crowd to, to stone him with rocks, which he would have been entitled to do, he says, put the family security on him again. Put the cloak of recognition on him again. More than that, take the ring. Take the family ring and put it on his finger. The signet of authority has been removed. Rings, of course, speak of covenant. You find them throughout the Bible. Covenant, lifelong commitment. That's what a ring gives. Giving and exchanging of rings. Many of you will notice I I wear a ring on my my right finger. It's only because it's the only one it fits. It's my mum and dad's wedding ring. My mum, as you know, many of you died. But it's got their initials and the date of their wedding. My mum wore that until the day of her death. And then my sister gave it to me. Put the ring of acceptance, put the ring of covenant back on. He's in the family. He's under the covering. He has authority. That which was dead has come back to life. We've been given the ring of the Lord Jesus. We've been, we've been brought, as we shared that communion, we've been brought into a new covenant, a new agreement. We were dead in our sin, but the ring of the love of Christ has been put on us again. Amen? Sandals on his feet. Sandals on his feet, no longer barefoot. Servants, slaves would have been barefoot, but a son would always wear sandals. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, you've been given sandals. I don't call you servants. Servants don't know their master's business. Instead, I have called you sons. Sons. Women, you're sons. Men, you're the bride of Christ. So we, we all work that one through. We've been called sons. See, the emphasis is not so much on the sheep that was found, or the coin that was found, or even the son that was found. The emphasis is on the heart of the Father to search, to save, to rescue, and to restore. And of course, this is deeply in the heart of Jesus. A few Verses later on, I'm not sure of the timeline right now, whether it was months, weeks, or you know, the next year, but the story of Zacchaeus, Luke 19, what does he say? You remember it again? The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. He's saying to the scribes and Pharisees, outsiders are not simply to be left outside. They're to be sought out, brought in, and restored. You might say, but Mark, where's the cross in all this? Where's the cross? Let me just read to you 1 John 4, 9 and 10. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning, a price-paying 
completing sacrifice for our sins. Do you notice in that story, it's not once but twice he goes out. All right? While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and ran. But you also see with the religious son re- representing the Jewish people as it were, or the religious self, uh, self-justifying, he wouldn't go in. What did the father do? He went out. He went out. Jesus came. The father sent the Lord Jesus. Just as we finish and as we pray, maybe you might like to shut your eyes or just reflect or just hear what we're saying. I just want to just lead us for just a, a second or two. Do you know this Father? Do you know this Father? Holy Spirit, even now, right now, would you reveal the heart of the Father to us again? The Father who adopted us, picked us out even before the foundation of the world, chose us, called us by name. We have a name. There's no nameless ones in the household of the Father. We have an an inheritance. He's given us an amazing inheritance. He speaks to us with compassion and love. He invites us to be at home with him, to be in his household. Not as servants, not as slaves, but, but as sons. What is our response to the Father? Is it one of rebellion? Do we want to just stretch our wings a bit and just pull back, pull away? Or is there that response of love and adoration that calls us to obedience? Obedience to the call of the Father. Not a place of crushing, but a place of release. Holy Spirit, would you help us to understand the heart of God towards us this morning? That it's a saving heart. We thank you today, Father, that there is always room in your heart for the hurting and the broken to come home. Let's just understand again. Holy Spirit, would you give us a revelation of this welcome? A welcome with open arms. While we were still dead in our sin and our trespasses Christ died for us there was nothing lovely in us there was nothing beautiful in us there was nothing justifying in us but he runs to us through the open arms nailed to the cross he comes to us the compassion and love and mercy kisses us with his love Kisses us with his mercy and his grace. Maybe some of us have been on a walkabout in our heads. Maybe even physically. We've found ourselves from time to time saying, do you know what? I'm just going to cross over. I'm going to cross over to the other side. I'm going to remove myself out of the people of God, out of the place of God's. Invitation even today. Perhaps it's just been in your head. You've just found yourself wandering. Invitation today to acknowledge, Father, I've sinned. And to turn. I want to tell you that even the slightest turn as you turn, while he was still a long way off, the Father saw him. And he ran. The Father runs to you today with grace and mercy. You say, I I don't feel I belong. I feel like an outsider. I want you to know that the Father places on you today a robe, a robe with the insignia of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, of the resurrection power of the open tomb. This is the family robe. He places on you a, a ring, a covenant, a new covenant sealed in his blood. He places on you sandals so that you have standing and position You have security and acceptance. Invitation to come again into the presence, 
the presence of the Father. You have a place in the household, a place in the home. Maybe we've treated our God as something of a candy saw, something as a sweet shop to be raided. We take the good things of God and we've taken them and misused them or abused them. Again, we come with confession, we come with repentance. But the Father's grace towards us is one to be lavish. You may feel you've squandered what he's given you. You may feel you've wasted opportunities. Maybe you might even say, I'm not sure I deserve another opportunity. I believe that the Lord would say today, I want to release you. I want you to know your position before me as you come humbly before me. And I want you to know freedom and joy and liberty and life. So much more we could say about the older brother and his response. It's a picture of Israel. We know self-justifying righteousness. Maybe there are some of us who've said, I'm okay, but I'm concerned about this one and that one, and we find ourselves pointing the finger. Encourage you to look first at your own heart. Come first to the Lord and recognize your heart before him, before ever pointing the finger at others. But also, I want us to know today, as we finish right now, I want us to know the heart of the Father. It says, you were always with me. Everything I have is yours. Of course he had a goat. He could have had a goat any time he wanted. Everything was his. Too busy trying to be something that he thought he should be, that he was missing the very heart of the Father in the household that he was in. Brothers and sisters, today, let's not be those who are trying to be something and actually miss the joy, the freedom, the love of the Father that we're already in, that we already have. Lord, we we thank you for this word. We we recognize it's not just a, a little story to to talk about. There's so much depth. Bless your people today. Speak to your people today. Help us today. Just aware that some of us probably need to respond. Maybe you need to just sit quietly. Let's be sensitive to one another. Maybe you need to sit quietly where you are. There'll be one or two from the prayer team will just be available. If you'd like to talk with someone, I'm very happy to be available. Let's do business with the Lord this morning. Let's receive this incredible love and forgiveness. Let's determine in our hearts. One of the things about these stories that Jesus tells so often, we don't know what happened with Zacchaeus. Did he live that right way? We don't know. This young man, how did he live? We don't know. The elder, older brother, did he respond? We don't know. You see, the decision is upon each one of us. What will we do with what God is saying to us? What, how will we live as a result of what we hear There's a responsibility on each one of us to respond and to walk in it.